0: this podcast is powered by sports Drink, your digital water cooler what's up everybody welcome back to attention to detail the podcast as always i'm your host coleman ayers this will be a pretty interesting podcast so i put up on my instagram yo i need some questions primarily performance training based i haven't looked at them yet all right that's the rule for these episodes moving forward. I got to answer them on the spot. So my answer may not be great. It may not be crazy, you know, well-researched. I won't be able to cite my sources and some of these things I just have in my head. Um, But I think that's what will make it interesting and organic and and just kind of natural. I'll try to keep it relatively short with each one so I don't ramble on. I have the tendency to do that. So that's a challenge to myself. Um, But yeah, I'm excited to get to it. And I'm literally scrolling through these questions right now and trying to figure out which one we go through first so let's do it first one my guy Yu ping shout out Yu ping intern at detail this summer great guy um ways to train the big toe all right for some of you guys this may be like train the big toe what are we training the big toe for well in reality the big toe is oftentimes the last thing that leaves the ground and oftentimes the first thing that hits the ground right so why not train it um in all seriousness, I work with a good amount of hoopers and athletes in general. And the amount or I guess the lack of flexion and just overall mobility and ability to move, I guess that's the same thing. The big toe is insane. Like I'll literally tell these guys and even girls um to get in kind of like a calf raise thing and lift their heel up as high as possible and just kind of flex their big toe. And they're like, oh, I can only get my heel up this high. I'm like, dude, what the hell? Um, So I do think this is important to be able to get into these positions. If you look at an acceleration, a lot of times our big toe is very flexed. And it also has to be strong in these positions. So I think to keep this question or this answer relatively short, I would say mobilize it. So this is a soft tissue release on the bottom of the foot, especially on the medial side, kind of towards that big toe. All right, A lot of us have crazy tight feet. I can get into the anatomy of this, but I'll keep it short. Um, If we mobilize that, stretch it out a little bit, just kind of hold a passive stretch where um, it is kind of that like we set up in a calf raise type situation. We lift up that heel into the point where we feel a stretch in the bottom of that foot kind of going into the big toe. We hold that bad boy for like 40 seconds. And then what I'll do after a couple times or a couple weeks of that is start going overcoming isos, pushing into the ground. All right, so you get into that stretch, now we can access those new ranges of motion, and we're pushing into the ground from there to get our toe, our big toe, and kind of the bottom arch of our foot strong in this position. All right, because again, we can get in this position great, but if we're not strong there, if we can't work with some power there and will up our nervous system to produce force in that position, probably not gonna be too good and probably just won't matter. All right, so I like to do that. Um, and then I think a lot of what we do like if we do that and then step over and do some accelerations that's kind of making it live in a sense that's that's making it real Um, so I do like pairing that with kind of some acceleration work maybe some sled work um, like heavy sled work some that uh, my guy Les Spellman talks about a lot we're pushing a heavy sled kind of mimicking those acceleration positions which again are probably the most important for having good big toe mobility right so stretch it out, mobilize it, whatever, get new ranges of motion, strengthen them, and then make it live with acceleration stuff. That's typically how I will approach it. Um, There's more that goes into it from there, but that's kind of a, you know, pretty dummy-proof three-part process. All right, how do you plan your workouts? So I could go from a skills training stance. All right, I'm gonna try to keep this more performance training based this episode. So I'll go from a performance training standpoint here. This is something that changes so often, like the structure of my workouts, I guess. And it's something where I always look back, you know, a couple months down the line, hopefully I'll do this here and be like, damn, I wasn't structuring my workouts well enough. Um, or I wasn't planning my workouts well enough or more as calculated as I should be. But right now, how I'll typically do it, work with a lot of either smaller semi-private groups or uh bigger groups, depending on the day, depending on the athletes. So typically, it won't be something where I have the entire time to work with one athlete. So I'll have a general structure and then kind of customize each athlete's program from there. So the general structure for some days, well, this is where it gets tough because I have a, tup, a couple, a couple of templates. Wow, that I'll use and kind of structure it from there. The main one I'll do is some type of creative warm up. All right, just kind of getting their heart rate going. Getting the blood flowing, getting the dopamine flowing—they're having fun. Then into a little bit more of a standard dynamic warm-up. These are kind of checking boxes that you know I think need to be checked in a warm-up setting, right? So if they have any specific mobility constraints or needs, we'll attack those. This is also time to really kind of rev up the foot and ankle complex of some hopping stuff, some mobility stuff. Big toe, boom. Um, and then some ankle stiffness and compliance stuff as well. So some is there. So I'll typically, I make sure that I'm covering at least three to four needed boxes in the warm up. So we're not just wasting this time doing random dynamic stretches because who likes wasted time? Especially when you're a hooper and you probably hate the weight room like most hoopers. Let's get something out of it. Um, from there, I'll go into a little bit more open skill stuff. And it's either open skill or just kind of like general movement work and I hate calling that cuz everything's movement but open skill is like more reactive stuff so we'll do some kind of fun uh change of direction or plyo stuff to get them going um and then by movement I mean like things where you're moving a little bit more freely right you'll I'll get into the strength stuff later but like strength stuff you're probably pretty constrained into moving with perfect technique around a bar you know you're lifting heavier loads um so you got to make sure you're more careful i would say more kind of free movement stuff is some contract relax stuff We're, we're moving with med balls um some more kind of power based stuff but moving more freely so you're less constrained in your movement um and this is very abstract but again this is some med ball throws this is certain plyos uh this is kind of like freestyle stuff so again i want this part to be fun i want this part to be challenging from a skill acquisition standpoint as well From there, I'll typically get into the big focus of the day. This could be anything, right? This could be single leg strength, right? This could be, uh, I don't know, low rim dunking for all I care. This could be uh, bilateral strength and we're just squatting or deadlifting. This could be horizontal power and we're getting creative with how we create that hip extension power. Um, So this could be really any meat and potatoes kind of superset here. And this could change for each athlete in the group but typically what i'll do is go two exercises i like doing contrast stuff Uh, i think i kind of spam it too much but it's just because a lot of times i'll have to have kind of stations with athletes even if it's six athletes like i don't have enough equipment in my gym to have them all doing something at once so i have to go kind of a station standpoint or standpoint station situation um so i will have one doing like you know if it's a if it's a i don't know bilateral strength day Let's just say, like, a, uh, an acceleration day. I'll have one doing kind of like a, a hip extension focused strength exercise or power exercise, whether that's, you know, a deadlift all the way to kind of a pull through, like hip extension with the cable. Then I'll have one kind of expressing that hip extension. That could be like an actual acceleration on the court, that could be um, pushing a heavy sled a little bit faster. That could be anything where they're kind of moving faster and applying these things. And then I'll have like an active rest station. This would be like ankle proprioception or something that doesn't really challenge them metabolically and kind of also allows their nervous system to kind of relax before that next time around. Um, But just something to, instead of just having them stand there. And then lastly, I'll I'll usually go with some supplemental strength exercises. So those will be two to three sets, a little bit higher reps, just kind of covering certain things. um, You know, hamstring work whether that's knee flexion or hip extension uh single leg work especially and this is just kind of building that supplementary strength that we need you know as we're moving around the court so that's kind of how i'll generally go at it 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 changes so much like i'll literally have some workouts where i'll have players just sprinting like on a field and after you know a little bit of a warm-up that's all we do so it can be anything from very structured like that to just more free-flowing Um, But that's how I would generally structure my workouts. Sorry for the long answer. How to resolve mental fatigue. Amazing. Great question. I'm doing an episode on this after this one. So you guys will hear that one soon. Stay tuned. Next one here is a great one. My guy Ian. Thoughts on if overtraining is an overuse or under recovery. That's actually a really good way to put it. Really interesting way to put it. think the answer as always is both but i kind of want to dive deeper into that rabbit hole a little bit i think for most hoopers uh i don't know man that's tough because it's 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 really both equally i mean the pendulum is always going to sway depending on who you are but i think there's a problem with both and both need to be attacked and both kind of go hand in hand in terms of how we attack those in a good way attack um so overtraining or sorry overuse. uh Just doing too much on the court, right? On the court for four to five hours a day. I think a lot of players have this problem now. Uh more players that I've worked with are getting used to this. Not getting used to it, but but understanding the effects of it and and learning how to uh kind of fix this. Maybe that's because they're around me a lot and I preach this, probably. But you know, even new kids that come in the gym, they they are able to listen to their body a little bit more. Uh, but i do think that just the the mentality of a lot of hoopers is go 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 and it's not let's be efficient and try to get as much as we can out of you know 45 minutes to an hour in both the weight room and the court and get better results without over training which is i what i personally think is ideal um so i think it's definitely overuse just not planning this out i think as hoopers we should probably be more calculated even as trainers like we gotta know how how often our players are working out. As a player, you gotta measure your load, your your external load, right? How much are you doing, and your internal load? How do you how do you feel, and then listen to your body. But I also think the under recovery is huge because it's like we all know damn well the average Hooper at any level is not sleeping more than seven hours a night. I I don't sleep seven hours a night because of that. I've I've started to train more efficient and less. But I know my, my athletes my athletes i don't like to say that as much the athletes that i work with they're not sleeping eight hours a night let alone seven um they're not eating well all the time but i think it goes down to kind of self-evaluating and and understand like which one am i weaker at if you're good at being efficient but you're like um ah, you know i sleep a lot or i don't sleep a lot i'm, I'm stressed out then it's probably the latter one for you uh, but if you're like you know, I, I'm very, I just go too hard. Like <laughs> I play too much. All right, we'll be more efficient. So I think the answer is both. And I think if you separate it this way, it makes it more manageable for you as an athlete to, um, to find a solution to it and to make sure that you're not over training. Great question. All right. Just saw another Yuping question. Big shout out. Yuping. uh, is barefoot training always beneficial? I'll keep this one quick. I don't think it always is. I train barefoot a lot. It's because I've done it for years. I've worked up to it, but I've had athletes where personally I've gone too much barefoot training with them at first and they're like, Oh, my feet are hurting. Thankfully it's never gotten to plantar fasciitis or anything, but they're, you know, they're getting there and I'm like, ah, let's reel it back. And that's, that was my bad. And I've kind of learned from that and learned how to manage it a little bit more. Um, So it's really just understanding what you're doing barefoot. Like if you're doing strength work, I think it's a little bit more manageable uh, because you're not like absorbing and, and storing and then releasing energy as much as like a hop or a bound or something where it's a lot of impact on one leg uh, but i think it's just making sure that you're not going too hard at first you're kind of ramping up and then also understanding that we want to strengthen our feet and trust me i'm a big proponent of that but like we also do play and choose so if we're doing agility work and we're doing plyometric work and all of it is barefoot we also have to teach our foot how to move in a shoe if that makes sense it sounds crazy cuz i'm a big barefoot guy a lot of times but like i think if we find a balance that's key really with anything but but this is a good example of that cuz we want to make sure that we also know how to move our foot and operate in a shoe but i don't think as hoopers i mean everything we do in a shoe or everything we do is in a shoe so will this ever become a problem i don't know i still have most of my guys work up to you know, 70% of their weight room stuff being barefoot, but I don't know, something to think about. All right, Caden James 24, smallest thing that's made the biggest difference. All right, I'm going to go in a weight room context for this performance training context. To me, I don't know if this is a small thing because this is, this can be a pretty big topic. It is a pretty big topic, but I would say just adding in freedom to performance training, right? If we're doing and maybe not just freedom, but some type of variability in, in kind of incorporating skill acquisition into it. So, for example, when I and I'll still build up with more structured, close skills. Um, but when I used to do, let's say, a tuck jump or a hurdle jump or something of that nature, it would be the same rep every time. All right. I started to realize in reading so much skill acquisition literature and just kind of understanding the nature of how we learn skills. And number one, everything we do in the, in the weight room is a skill. So those tuck jumps those hurdle jumps those bounds whatever even squats those are movements we can learn those skills and the way we learn those skills also translates to the court Um, but also just that like it's important to make sure that we have some variability in our training because that's how basketball is that's not only how we learn like i mentioned that's how basketball is as well so getting back to the original example tuck jumps hurdle jumps whatever i'll still have my athletes work up to it especially if they're a little bit less um, experienced but at some point i'm like all right let's make these reactive now you got to jump in the direction that i point on the tuck jump now let's uh move these hurdles a little bit so one jump is shorter one jumps longer and what that does is number one it keeps the athlete engaged personally if i'm doing tuck jumps now or any plyo by my fifth rep i'm like all right bro i'm going through the motions now like it's it's like yeah like go hard every rep yes agreed you have to maintain that intent but it's tougher to be truly engaged when there's no challenge in it because you get used to the movement by this fifth or sixth rep like if you and this is tough because not many people understand both skill acquisition and the weight room side of things but like everything we do in the weight room is block training in a sense And that's okay, because it's the weight room, we're trying to develop physical qualities. But I do think in movements like plyometrics, these are skills as well, right? Our nervous system is controlling these things, when to contract, when to relax, um, you know, how to adjust when we move side to side. And I think when it's only the quote unquote block practice, where it's the same rep every time, it's a little bit tougher to do this. And we're not really training the movement, it's just the qualities, the physical qualities. So now, you know, I'll, I'll give them some some uh, cues. I'll say, hey, freestyle a little bit. It's got to be a different direction. Every tuck jump, you'll still land in you know the same general area. Or I'll do some bounds or some some pogos or something like that. I'm like freestyle with it, different speeds, different stuff like this. And now we have some variability into it. Now we're training our foot and our ankle at different angles rather than the same one every single time. And to me, this creates better transfer to the games. And it's not just theoretical. I've seen results with this in myself, with my athletes as well. And a couple things, just how fluid they move, how prepared they feel coming onto the court, and also injury prevention as well. Uh, Knock on wood, hopefully you can hear me knocking on wood here. We haven't really had a serious injury yet with our athletes. Um, That may be nothing that I've done, but uh, since we opened up the gym a year ago, we've trained a lot of athletes, none of them have had a serious injury. So I don't know if that's the case, but me being hopeful, I do think that stuff like this helps prepare athletes for the court better, for the demands of the court, and ultimately will uh, decrease the risk of injury, hopefully, right? Um, again, I can't claim that, that this is what's done that, but uh, yeah, that's, that's how I like to think about it at least. So I would say that's kind of the, the smallest thing or something that's made a big difference in the last year or two that I've started to implement in my performance training. All right, a couple more. So I'm going to pair two questions here. My guy, D Coop, Danny Cooper, go check him out. That's my, that's my boy right there. Um, Best ways to warm up, specific examples. And then I got another one, SV1 man, how would you warm up for U12 players? So I want to start off by saying that I don't think the U12 player and the NBA player warm up should be that much different. All right, before you, before you come at me, before you turn off the podcast, I'll explain. I think at some point there should be some fun. There should be some engagement. There should be, there should be some stuff that gets your nervous system going. You don't. You shouldn't end the workout, regardless of your level, bored as hell, feeling like damn f this this stuff. You know what I'm saying? Like it just shouldn't be the case for a U12 player. You got to keep it engaging for them. Yeah, we could talk about yeah, let's grind it out, man. They got to love this shit. Whatever. Nah, man. Keep it fun for U12 player. Play taps. Play tags. Play a different sport just get their heart flowing or heart flowing blood flowing heart pumping in some way and then you can start to kind of progress it to more structured kind of dynamic warm up idea uh, kind of like I talked about earlier and I think the same thing goes for for college players for pro players definitely for high school players I've worked with NBA players who we've done some fun warm ups and they've loved it and they're like I feel better than ever I feel like I'm into the workout more in 5 minutes than I've ever been before now the higher you get up in levels the more we have to be preventative you know the more force we're putting in the ground nba players putting way more force in the ground than 12 year old so we got to be more prepared for that so after that or as a part of their warm-up they would have more structured things uh, to make sure that everything is firing on on all cylinders but i do think the 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 essence the crux of the warm-up being engaging and and fun in some ways or maybe not even fun so to speak but you know some difficulty in it some some reaction in it something like that to really prime up our nervous system is huge so decoup specific examples i like playing kind of some tap stuff with my with my players um i will get on the court a little bit and just do like essentially a mic and drill but you can't touch the ground if that makes sense so you got to get out of the rim and finish quickly they'll mess up a lot they'll have fun We'll do some ball handling freestyles. We'll, we'll kind of freestyle to some music. Different stuff like that where it's like, let's have some fun. Let's get you into it. Let's get you engaged. And then as a part of that or after that or before that, that's when we'll check those boxes to make sure that you're not getting hurt. So that's kind of my answer on both of those questions. Favorite strength exercises for the vert. All right. I'm going to give you guys the strength exercise that is bulletproof. It works every time right you're gonna get bouncy as hell it doesn't exist trust me no in all seriousness this is it's annoying to hear this question on my end because i'm like you know the nerdy scientific guy that kind of understands this stuff i get it i used to ask this question all the time um so i'd say the answer to this is always going to be it depends on who you are how you move what you need. Where you are in your training journey, et cetera, etc, cetera, etc. Cetera. So my answer to anything with the best, or my favorite, is typically going to be it depends. Now if I completely misunderstood you, my guy, uh, and you mean the favorite one for myself, like which one I like doing the most, number one, I apologize. Number two, probably trap bar jumps. I just enjoy it a lot as a strength exercise, and eh, more so power go speed strength all right but yeah that's kind of my answer to that one respect then the last one here all right and i have a podcast coming about this soon on in-season training somebody asked 910 sosa asked programming in-season training i'm going to keep it very short here because i'll let that other podcast do the talking i would say just listen to your body that's the biggest thing the kind of prerequisite um number two is to cut jumps cut plyometric contacts down i say to at least 50 percent. i like to still keep them involved in the program because when in when in on the basketball court in a real game do we ever jump at full absolute max intensity max output not very often so i like to keep some of them in there um obviously depending on the athlete how often they're playing how they feel how their knees are etc 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 but i think the bulk of it should just be easy strength work so stuff where you're not really straining, you're lifting weights, but you're going through kind of deeper range of motion, just keeping your joints, your structure healthy, and then attacking what you need with that time. So it shouldn't be a bunch of stuff, email notification again, my bad, shouldn't be a bunch of stuff where it's like, you know, let's, let's try to make huge gains here. I think you can make games in season, absolutely. But I think it should be finding what works for you, what you need more importantly, uh, whether that's a weakness or whether that's a strength you want to key in on even more. And then attacking those things, almost like you wouldn't in a skills workout. Um, but in terms of our performance training in season, I would say more so easy strength. All right. So like two to three sets, like five to eight reps. I don't want you straining, trying to get up there. It should be easy strength. Um, shout out to Dan John for that book. That was fire. Great philosophy there. So I've been playing around with that. Um, But yeah, and then just kind of finding the nuts nuts and bolts things that you need and that work for you. So efficiency, efficiency, efficiency is key here. So as always, thank you guys for tuning in. I really hope you enjoyed this episode. If I didn't get to your question, I promise you, I saw it. I'm going to try to get to it. And I may even be doing a podcast on if it was a really good question. So again, always stay tuned. Uh, Appreciate all the support from you guys. Means a lot. And we're going to keep this moving. All right, stay tuned.